This episode of Space Q is brought to you by MDA. MDA is an internationally recognized leader in space robotics, satellite antennas and subsystems, surveillance and intelligence systems, defense and maritime systems, and geospatial radar imagery. Founded in 1969, MDA is recognized as one of Canada's most successful technology ventures with locations in Richmond, Ottawa, Brampton, Montreal, and Halifax. MDA is a Maxars technology company. For more information, visit mdacorporation.com. Five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Okay, this is episode 35 of the podcast we started last June. It's also now been a little over a year since we started Space Q. Space Q, like other media outlets, needs the support of its audience so that it can provide news and analysis every day on our website, our newsletter, and this podcast. Media companies rely on advertising, subscriptions, and sometimes other revenue-generating streams. At Space Q, we've just started with advertising. We really appreciate our advertisers like MDA and Penguin Books. But in 2018, frankly, advertising doesn't pay all the bills. We believe that SpaceQ fills a need in Canada that no one else is doing. That is, covering the space sector on a full-time basis. We could put up a paywall, but that would defeat one of our main objectives. And that is to grow our reach in Canada and globally, so that people come to understand the value and importance the space sector has on their daily lives. So we won't put up a paywall. Instead, we're asking you to become patrons of SpaceQ. If you like what we do, we ask you to visit patreon.com spaceq and support us by selecting one of the monthly support levels. We've set some target goals on our Patreon page. That includes raising enough funds to hire freelance writers more often, and eventually hire two to three full-time reporters and a webmaster. For the last year, I've not drawn a salary from SpaceQ, and what advertising support we've had to date has gone to pay our monthly expenses and to our writers. This campaign will run throughout this month. I hope you see the value in what we do and support us. The address again is patreon.com slash spaceq. Okay, now on to our guests. My guest this week is Michael Simpson, the Executive Director of the Secure World Foundation, a U.S.-based not-for-profit, and I should also point out that Michael is the former president of the International Space University. Michael was the opening keynote speaker at the recent Canadian SmallSat Symposium. His speech was on the sustainability of space. We explore that topic further. Since our audience might not be that familiar with your organization, can you provide a little background on how your organization started and its purpose? Yeah, the Secure World Foundation is the brainchild of a family, uh, actually a family with Canadian roots, the Arsenault family. Marcel Arsenault's family roots are in the Prince Edward uh, Island. Um, in fact, I think their communities in the Prince Edward Island where two-thirds of the phone book are Arsenault's. Um, he and his wife, Cinda Collins Arsenault, had this vision about 12 or so years ago now that uh, 
one way to approach the challenge of peace was to try to find a way to uh, enable people who might confront conflict to resolve it before they want to do harm to each other. Um, They looked at the space sector and they say, isn't remarkable that it's gone so many decades with some of the most advanced technology in the world without having an actual spacecraft on spacecraft act of intentional violence? The next thought was, well, why don't we see if we could preserve that? And so the concept of space sustainability began to emerge. It was, as uh, David Kendall mentioned to the audience here uh, at the uh, SmallSat conference, um, uh, an idea that was beginning to be discussed in the United Nations. Uh, They were moved by it. They recognized that sustainability involved not only good practices and best practices in space, but also involved an intentional desire to resolve potential conflict over use of orbit, over access to resources, over accidental uh, incidents that might occur. And so they founded uh, the Secure World Foundation with the notion that it would seek uh, cooperative solutions internationally uh, to space sustainability. We've now been around um, a better part of uh, 12 years. Uh, We have um, uh, become a very active player in the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. Uh, We've had substantial engagement with a number of governments around the world, including uh, the Canadian Space Agency and uh, Canadian diplomatic efforts in uh, a number of organizations. Uh, And uh, we have found that our role really is bringing people to the table to talk about potential areas of conflict when for some reason or other they hadn't done that yet. And uh, we've networked uh, folks in areas as different as uh, asteroid threat mitigation, uh, on-orbit servicing, space traffic management, uh, debris mitigation, um, and uh, data sharing uh, in ways that make us feel this method works. There aren't that many people trying it, but getting people to seek, in effect, structured cooperation in approaching solutions to conflict is just as good idea in space as it is for two drivers that have an accident to know that there's a process for sharing data with each other and resolving the conflict of whose fault it was uh, without uh, coming out of their car with uh, uh, with uh, um, you know something to hit each other with so it's uh, It's an exciting organization, not like a lot of other organizations, and one that I think has uh, earned a lot of respect worldwide. Now, if I understand correctly, it's a not-for-profit? Not-for-profit. It's endowed by the Arsenault family. Uh, And uh, they have been generous over the years with uh, additional support. We do receive um, gifts occasionally from others who uh, support one aspect or another of our work. Most of those are from private sources. Um, We have uh, been open to uh, contracts, even with governments, when they deal with a core issue that we're interested in. We do, for example 
participate right now as a subcontractor on um, a project to try to develop best practices and a means of privatizing the implementation of those best practices in the area of on-orbit servicing. Um, Extraordinarily high potential for good in that. But obviously, if you can service a satellite, you can damage a satellite. And so we're trying to find ways where we can be more confident that the intention of the servicer is service and that uh, people can worry less about what hidden intentions there might be in developing the technology. How many people work with the organization? Uh, We have a total of 11. Um, Six of us are primarily focused on working projects. Uh, even even in my case as executive director, I have uh, worked on projects regularly just to extend the reach that we have of people who are capable of, of um, say, contributing to the development of a policy document uh, for Copios or uh, contributing to the background information available to governments on uh, asteroid uh, threat mitigation uh, um, space applications, uh, Earth observation uh, concepts. Um, and that has uh, sort of one of the reasons why uh, often uh, we meet with each other somewhere other than any of our offices, somewhere around the world as we cross paths. So what are some of the issues that you're working on at this time? So um, on the grand scale, we have been working very hard to prepare for the Unispace Plus 50 um, conference that the United Nations will organize in Vienna this year in June. Uh, It's only the fourth conference on space policy, multilateral international space policy uh, in the history of the United Nations. And it, it will almost certainly have a major effect on setting the agenda for discussion of space issues between now and 2030. That's its ambition is to issue a statement uh, tentatively called Space 2030 uh, that would um, try to bring into the discussion of space policy issues such as commercialization, issues such as the role of small satellites, uh, issues such as Um, the impending development of space resource acquisition, space mining. All issues that could be thought about vaguely at our last conference in 1999, but have now become very, very much more specific. Um, On a smaller or sort of more focus scale. Uh, We work very heavily with the Group on Earth Observations, uh, dealing with the development of their program to better link the science of observing the Earth with the needs of uh, people on the ground uh, to use this data for city planning, to use it for wild water management, to use it for fisheries uh, development and protection, to use it for precision farming. Um, We've entered a era since the Mexico City um, ministerial of uh, the Group on Earth Observations where we're really seeing 
that there's a decade of work to improve the relations and the intercommunication between users and producers of data. Uh, we've been very active in that. We've been very active in, in data sharing, that is helping governments understand that hoarding data uh, really doesn't make any sense. Uh, that huge markets have been created whenever the government released uh, data. The Landsat experience in the United States was one of the first great eye-openers to that. Um, and so we've worked very heavily with major producers of Earth observation data to um, uh, make sure that that data is available. Um, the United States made an important decision in 2013 to make space shuttle data from a special radar topography mission um, available. Uh, the Europeans uh, have made spot one data available and increasingly uh, are making their um, Copernicus program uh, data available. So. What that does is enable smaller countries to have basic data sets that can enable them to um, better develop their communities and better solve natural disaster potential problems and simple commercial problems about where to site industries, where to site farms, where to, um, where to manage uh, the problems of fishing piracy, for example. Um, we work uh, heavily in the area of uh, on-orbit servicing. Um, we have looked very hard at emerging proposals and concepts for space traffic management, um, which almost inevitably will be a big object of discussion in the next 10 years. As we put more and more objects in space, we lose the spontaneity of just letting them go wherever. Uh, and we begin to have a need to think about how we decide where satellites will be and to know uh, where they're going to be uh, for, uh, for the future. So we'll talk about space debris. Um and the proliferation, proliferation, I would say, of more satellites, especially small satellites, is going forward. But um, just out of curiosity, have, um, have there been any discussions about using something like blockchain technology for open access to data and putting it on the blockchain so that it's available to everybody? Yeah, I, I mean, you hear it now more in an academic setting. I mean, I certainly heard it. Uh, this last uh, um, October and September in um, Adelaide, Australia, where the International Astronautical Congress was meeting, uh, people were, were talking now about where would blockchain uh, make a productive difference and where would it simply look modern to use it. And so they, they were beginning already to realize that uh, you know, one of the real advantages of blockchain is that as the chain grows, each block guarantees that the previous block has been unaltered. It's, it's trustable, if you will. Um, there are relatively few situations in which the data flow, for example, from Earth observation, has a trust deficit. I mean, it's not like people are saying, ah, oh, you know, these pixels have been maneuvered and, and this isn't the Toronto I live in. This picture has to be fiddled somehow. Um, on the other hand, 
Um, uh, as you're suggesting, blockchain also seems to be a distribution mechanism that might uh, be um, um, be interesting, but represents one of those sort of new, not invented here technologies within space that's just beginning to have some people talk about where it could be truly useful. And uh, I, I would have to say that I did not hear in the conversations I was a p- part of a great deal of sense that that's been defined yet. Um, but uh, there are at least some academics that are looking at uh, uh, where it could be helpful. And one interesting suggestion was in a complicated communications in space where you want to make sure you haven't dropped pieces of the information, uh, you might be able to use blockchain to say, um, this information has come through undamaged by problems of uh, RF communication. And that um, could be an odd way for it to enter the space sector, but it's certainly one that uh, seems to have gotten at least a little attention. All right, so let's talk about space debris, and we could talk about this for hours, (laughs) but we'll we'll keep it to a few minutes. Um, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, I see that there's two issues with two, there's more than two issues, but two central issues with space debris. Existing space debris and what we do with it, and the space debris that we're now creating and could create. We'll get to the second part in a minute. What about the first part, the, the existing space debris that's up there? What are we doing to uh, deal with it, and who's responsible? Okay, well, what we're doing is uh, wringing our hands a little bit, um, The technical problems of dealing with space debris and, frankly, the political problems of dealing with space debris um, have somewhat conspired to leave us thinking a lot about what we should do and really not doing anything to eliminate the debris. Um, We're getting a bit better at mitigation to the extent of designing things where that will be less of a problem in the future and developing launch techniques where that'll be less of a problem. But for the debris that actually exists, keep in mind that most spacecraft are specifically designed to avoid magnetic interference with uh, radio transmissions and therefore, or with their instrumentation, and therefore they're not magnetic. Uh, The great dream of a lot of people who are just thinking about this without having been involved in is that we could put a giant magnet up there and just attract it all. Well, um, we could drag the magnet through a debris field and it wouldn't attract much because there's just not the material that we use. Um, There is probably more progress being made on how you would deorbit defunct satellites than there is on how you deal with these pieces of space junk that uh, you know, can be as large as a, you know, a softball, a soccer ball, and they're moving at 26, 27,000 kilometers an hour. I mean, obviously, that is a, um, a formidable object. 
the problem with those objects is it's very difficult to figure out how you would grapple them, how you would catch them. Uh, the Russians, I think, did an experiment where they actually put aerogel into a special uh, uh, experimental device. They they captured lots of bits and pieces, but completely filling up an orbit with aerogel is not yet um, practicable. So that wasn't a scalable um um, experiment. Um, for the larger pieces, though, uh, take a piece like Envisats, uh, six, seven metric tons of satellite that was a magnificent hero of uh, environmental monitoring and then ran out of gas. Uh, the European Space Agency has indicated that they would like to bring it down in the early uh, 2020s. Uh, when you think of an agency that has that many smart people and a pretty nice budget needing to take five or so years to develop a system to safety, safely bring it down, you get a size of a sense of how big the problem is. Technologically, you don't want to engage that object and start it tumbling. Uh, remember, uh, Neil Armstrong almost died in the rendezvous attempt with the Agena B uh, when it started to spin on him. <coughs> um, that that is a real problem when you have two orbiting objects trying to rendezvous each other, and particularly a problem when they weren't designed to rendezvous with each other. Um, there are all sorts of proposals for ways to put nets around things, to put uh, grappling probes into the kick motors that put these objects into their orbit. Um, none of them yet with sufficient funding or technological certainty to run the risk that you make this piece of debris more dangerous by you know, literally changing its behavior in orbit. Add to that that many pieces of debris, take, for example, the Russian proton rocket bodies that I referred to today, um, are claimed by their owners, and their owners are the launching state that put them into orbit, to still be useful. Uh, the Russians use the proton rocket bodies for laser calibrations and for apparently some other kinds of uh, research. Uh, when you suggest to them that maybe we ought to treat them like derelicts would be treated at sea, they remind us that the Outer Space Treaty says that that's their property and they're responsible and they don't want it removed. You just can't go and grab an object and deorbit it. No, I You have mean, to look at the legal... Right. You've got to look at the fact that we have made agreements that are designed to keep us from shooting at each other in space and have worked uh, with frustrations maybe, but they've worked. Um, I think eventually, um, with the right incentives, all countries that have objects in space that might uh, be considered uh, derelict uh, um, would be willing to implement technologies, at least on their own, that would help to get them out of orbit. Um, they are, after all, in everybody's way. You know, the Chinese shot down one of their own weather satellites in 2007. And it was, you know, clearly a test by the People's Liberation Army of the ability to take out a satellite. Now, their satellite was dead. 
Uh, but unfortunately, uh, they created a very large debris cloud, 5,000 trackable objects, and heaven only knows how many untrackable objects. One of the biggest victims has been the Chinese. And so we haven't seen them do it again. Uh, but they had to maneuver Tiangong several times. In fact, one of the reasons that things probably dropping out of orbit is that they used up a fair amount of fuel to to get around the debris cloud that they created. Um, so uh, a bit of a self-punishing uh, lesson, but one that... Uh, Makes you wonder, what were they thinking? Well, you know, I have talked to people in Chinese civil space that at least claim that they were never consulted and that uh, the PLA uh, apparently had the blessing of certain political authorities in China and moved ahead without consulting the people who could have told them that they're going to create a debris cloud. And, uh, uh, and of course, then there was the tit-for-tat with the United States shooting down uh, U.S. 193, a defunct... Uh, um, uh, National Reconnaissance Organization satellite. Difference is that almost all that debris is deorbited because of the way they do the way they destroyed it. Um, but fortunately, that didn't continue with other countries showing that they too could shoot down satellites because it makes a mess. I mean, it's. Um, I showed a video today of what a 22 caliber bullet does hitting sheet metal. And I think that that helped a lot of people realize what the problem is in terms of creating this this debris dust, these debris particles, and then debris chunks and pieces. And on Earth, that falls to ground. In space, it orbits. So with the debris that's already there, do you see us dealing with this in a realistic way in, let's say, even the next 10 years? Well, uh, ironically, I think that although the small satellite industry is frequently accused of setting up a situation where they uh, will be creating debris by putting non-maneuverable CubeSats, for example, into orbit, I think the volumes that the small satellite industry is proposing to put in orbit will help us get to the kind of space traffic management that we need to know where the debris is and to be really be able to begin a remediation plan. Um, it, it's going to be important for us to really be able to precisely identify the worst clouds or the worst offenders in terms of specific objects. And then we have to solve the one of the most massively unsolved questions, who pays for it? Um, it's funny it, you say that. I was at a bilateral uh, symposium a few years ago between Canada and Scotland, uh, not as media, and uh, I was part of a session that was on space debris, and that was one of the things I brought up, which was, okay, so who's going to pay for it? Well, and so um, that probably is the piece where governments ought to be most engaged in uh, their communication with other governments because this is the, the, the economies of a number of countries are probably equal to funding at least demonstration projects. Um, ESA will certainly get some good PR value 
out of deorbiting Envisat if he can pull this off. And they will do it on a budget that's contributed to by what, 20, you know, what is he said now? 17, 18 countries. Um, that will then show that it is possible collectively to get rid of some major offenders. It's not going to get the protons out of orbit. Um, Russia uses a technique for getting to geosynchronous orbit that's different than most other countries and that it goes direct to geosynchronous orbit. Most other countries go to what's known as a geosynchronous transfer orbit, which means that the boosters that take them up to that level don't go all the way to geo and therefore don't end up potentially creating an intersection with the geosynchronous arc. Uh, the Russian proton bodies do um, because they take the satellites right to where they want them. And that means that they had enough momentum to get there. And then they go into these elliptical orbits that uh, keep coming back home. And that, uh, um, you know, uh, to assume that Russia is going to somehow immediately decide it's going to, uh, out of the goodness of its heart, take all of that stuff out of the orbit is not horribly likely. So we eventually would have to find some sort of negotiated deal that brings them down, maybe brings down that uh, old U.S. Uh, uh, Vanguard rocket that's also in a weird elliptical orbit and brings down a number of other defunct satellites, particularly operating in polar orbit, and uh, um, that we can expect aren't going to decay very quickly. Um, one hopeful sign is you're beginning to hear business plans from companies that say, if we could get the right to exploit the satellites on orbit, we could literally consume the satellite or the rocket body on orbit and turn it into material we could then transform into spare parts for use in space using additive manufacturing or 3D printing. Well, it's a little encouraging because if there were a recycling industry up there, um, you know, maybe we get uh, 100 Jawas in orbit and we uh, start we start using uh, we start using some of that material. That would solve part of the problem of who pays for it. So, this is we've been talking about the debris that's already up there. How are we doing now at actually? not creating more debris. So there have been a number of um, uh, hopeful steps, I think, particularly emerging out of the work of the Interagency Debris Committee, which is uh, um, a intergovernmental organization involving um, a number, 11, 12, uh, maybe a few more than that now, um, countries whose space agencies are cooperating on trying to identify best practices. Uh, they were quite successful in getting a resolution drafted that uh, went through the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space and became a UN resolution on guidelines for debris mitigation. The guidelines are not nearly as bold as those of us that would like to see space cleaned up would like to have be the case, but they are at least a start. 
Uh, there are guidelines that say that an object uh, launched into space should provide for being deorbited uh, within 25 years of the end of its useful life. So at least we don't have the early proton or the or the vanguard situations where you have something in orbit for 60 years that really has no purpose. Um, a lot of people would like to see that changed uh, so that um, the plan would be to either move something to what we call a graveyard orbit, an orbit that's not particularly useful where we could store garbage until we figure out a better way to deal with it, or deorbit it um, in less than 25 years, considerably less than 25 years. You heard me say today uh, to the, uh, uh, the folks at the uh, SmallSat uh, Symposium in Toronto that um, uh, for the, the small satellites, ideally we'd be thinking about bringing these things down within a few years of the end of their useful life, meaning either by a planned deorbit caused by there being in a low Earth orbit where Earth's undulating atmosphere would actually put enough drag on the satellite to bring it down, or if the satellite's higher, uh, using some form of propulsion um, to move the satellite um, back into a fiery reentry in the in the atmosphere, or uh, to a uh, orbit that is uh, not used for commercial or or public purposes. That. Um, um, that said, the debris guidelines have done an awful lot to help people realize that the way we put things in orbit can reduce debris, uh, using launchers differently, making sure that the launcher um, and its upper stage, its orbital insertion stage, are designed to be deorbited. Uh, there was a lot of talk in the United States recently about uh, what initially looked like a SpaceX failure uh, to put a military satellite into orbit. Uh, what's interesting is that one of the speculations about what happened to that satellite was that it didn't release from the upper stage. Um, and the good news behind it is if the satellite is lost, it was lost in part because... Uh, SpaceX did exactly what we've been asking people to do, and it deorbited that upper stage, maybe with the satellite attached to it. Um, and we have no idea. <laughs> no idea. Um, Nobody's talking. The conspiracy theories are um, are quite rich. Um, you know, uh, you have a multi-billion-dollar satellite disappear, and people aren't complaining too loudly. You just sort of wonder. Uh, but the um, um, but that practice is becoming more and more common to make sure that the launcher stages, uh, at the insertion stages, um, are drop back through the atmosphere where their own speed and uh, material will, for the most part, we've had a few exceptions, but for the most part, um, uh, burn up the rocket, burn up the material. And so you have nothing, you have really nothing on the ground and you have nothing in space. Um, 
With satellites, we've recognized that satellites in several cases, and even some rocket bodies, would spontaneously explode in orbit. Um, and they exploded because in the case of... Uh, well, the U.S. Air Force had a series of them that have uh, been... And what we found is that the insertion stages uh, maintain pressure in the, uh, in the tanks. Uh, that pressure in the tanks contributed to the residue of fuel eventually becoming volatile um, with uh, the freeze-thaw um, cycles and uh, heat, thaw superheating cycles. And um, that would cause explosion of a rocket body. Well, suddenly you got lots of bits and pieces up there. Satellites had the same problem. Uh, um, a, a residue of fuel in the tank uh, could uh, create uh, an explosion. And since... And since satellites frequently had hypergolic fuels, fuels that would um, automatically ignite under uh, uh, certain circumstances, uh, you know, we had a bomb waiting to happen. And so we have changed in progressively the way we design satellites to make it far less likely that if by some mismanagement or error or comp- computational difficulty, um, they ran out of fuel, or at least ran out of fuel they could get access to, the residue that was left wouldn't cause the satellite to explode. Um, and so we've, we've making progress, um, depending on some people's estimates, we've actually seen big piece um, debris go down but there appears to still be a very substantial amount of debris um, being created, maybe by Kessler effect, this effect of debris-on-debris uh, uh, debris collisions, <coughs> uh, maybe by um, uh, still some residual debris created from satellite design um, or from uh, debris-on-satellite collisions uh, where... You know, you lose a little bit of a solar panel if it gets hit by a two-centimeter rock. Uh, You put all that together, and you'll say we've made some progress, but um, um, uh, our grandchildren want us to make more. So I have just a couple more questions. We have uh, approximately 1,400 active satellites uh, at the moment. Uh, the small satellite community is looking at launching several thousand, if not more, depending on how plans go for, for some of these uh, companies in the next uh, five to ten years, which is a substantial uh, amount of uh, uh, satellites being uh, launched. Should we require, and this would obviously have to be on a national basis, but maybe create a, some sort of treaty to the United Nations or something, Require that these small satellites have very specific techniques for bringing their satellites or deorbiting their satellites uh, within a much shorter time frame, like with either you know some sort of propulsion. Or here in Toronto, the Space Flight Lab has uh, successfully tested a miniature sort of like solar sail to pops out that will help it deorbit quicker. Yeah, I I mean I think. Um for the small set industry, um, it will be very important to them 
to be able to show that they're consistent with this sort of new wave um, where we think about deorbiting architectures, the methods by which we will deorbit uh, satellites before we put them in orbit. Um, I think we need to keep in mind that that has to apply to all satellites. Um, there, um, there are some recent examples of very big satellites that um, have not been deorbited. Uh, there's the imminent deorbiting of the Chinese space station where we can tell <clears throat> where it's going to land along a orbital path that's about 100 kilometers wide over most of the planet. So it's not like we really know where this is coming down. It depends on when it finally loses orbital velocity. Um, so the small satellite industry is not the only one that needs to deal with it. They have a different kind of problem in that it's harder for them within what we call their their mass budget, that is the amount of weight, roughly, that they can put into a, uh, a CubeSat uh, or bigger uh, to figure out what the strategy is that's going to be the most effective to bring it down. With the smallest satellites, the absolute best effective strategy that doesn't damage the mass budget is you put them into a low orbit. Um, that means you intentionally put it into orbit with the idea that within a year or two, Earth will bring it back down actually has some business advantages because it means that every time you replace one of those satellites, you're replacing it with modern technology. Um, the big satellites way up uh, uh, in the geosynchronous arc uh, operate on technology that could be 20, 30 years old. So there's a bit of an advantage there. Challenge starts to occur when you begin to put satellites into orbits um, just slightly below or slightly above the plane of the um, um, of the space station. Um, you certainly don't want the things above the space station to decay through the orbit of the space station because uh, that kind of damage uh, uh, could be pretty disastrous to human life. Um, and at that point, uh, it's it's probably necessary for the small satellite industry to be looking very hard at some propulsive capability that will enable it to control its deorbiting. Um, and that means it has to conserve enough fuel or other energy source to permit the deployment of whatever that method's going to be, an electromagnetic tether, a, a small solar sail of some sort, or um, uh, there are various, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, electrical uh, propulsion techniques that uh, are getting smaller and smaller and smaller, might be usable. I, the breakthrough Starshot people, the ones that want to send a spaceship the size of a microchip to uh, Proxima Centauri, actually have a tiny, tiny, tiny thruster on that on that uh, chip. And so in addition to having a camera on that chip, they have a thruster on that chip. And um, 
uh, it, it don't count on it de- delivering major course changes. But then over the course of time to get to uh, a star that's four light years away, it doesn't take a heck of a lot of change in degree to change locations. So um, the small satellite industry is going to have to recognize that even if it's only for the public relations value, um, they can't appear to be um, the um, the um, um, lawbreakers of an era where we're trying to clean debris. And frankly, I think they're going to be able to do it because thruster technology is advancing at a rate that you can conceive of putting it into a um, four-unit, eight-unit um, um, microsat and not breaking the, you know, breaking the energy budget or the mass budget. Hey, so let's uh, shift gears a little bit and go beyond low, low Earth orbit and talk about um, asteroids, uh, the moon, and exploiting uh, resources. Uh, we have a moon treaty uh, that was uh, came into being 38 years ago, but it was only signed by 11 countries. Um, since it appears uh, humans are going back to the moon, uh, is it time to revisit the moon treaty or get a new dialogue going before humans attempt to exploit the moon? And I'll also throw in their asteroids. Yeah, um, you know, as as I think you mentioned at the beginning of the program, I'm the vice chair of a group known as the Hague International um, Space Resources Governance Working Group. And we're a group of people who represent governments, non-governmental organizations, intergovernmental organizations, companies um, that are trying to deal with just this very problem of whether we could create guidelines for best practice that would be sufficiently persuasive to deal with most of the situations we might confront in attempting to develop resources uh, off Earth. So a lot of debate about this. Uh, the fact is the Moon Treaty is interesting. It has relatively few signatories. The Outer Space Treaty, which uh, has been around since 1967, um, actually is the document that most people are looking to for trying to build a concept of how we would deal uh, with resources in space. So let's just tick off a couple of quick issues from that treaty that complicate the matter. Uh, The Outer Space Treaty prevented any claim of sovereignty in space. Great idea. Russia and the United States were both Russian for the moon. Neither wanted the other to claim it as a part of its own country. We probably prevented massive um, conflict had we uh, had a gold rush uh, for the moon. Um, But the complication we inherit is that every country in the world that has laws that deal with access to natural resources builds those laws on the assumption that somebody is sovereign over those resources. So there is no sovereign over the moon. So if we're to have any agreement on how we use it, we need to get multiple countries to agree on some set of rules knowing that there's no monarch or equivalent out there to impose those rules. Uh, So that then leads to 
two other elements of the Outer Space Treaty. One, that there's a provision in the Outer Space Treaty that says that no piece of uh, a celestial body can be appropriated um, uh, for national use or uh, the use of the citizens of a country. That line appears at the same place as the discussion of sovereignty. And so the debate goes into two paths. The people that say non-appropriation means you cannot have property rights on anything in space. The other group in which you find um, countries today like, you know, Luxembourg, the United States, frankly, China and Russia in some of their past arguments, although the Russian position may be changing, um, argue that um, uh, you can you can use material that you obtain from a celestial body. Uh, you just can't claim the underlying real estate, uh, so you can't have title. The third element, and it may be the critical element is that the Outer Space Treaty says that the space should, the um, exploration and use of space should be for the benefit of all humankind. They actually say all mankind, but I think we've learned a few lessons. It is all humankind we're trying to deal with here. And (coughs) finding a way that we can at least provide as much benefit from space resource development as we provide worldwide through things like Earth observation satellites and, and communications and broadcast satellites, which are owned by a relatively small number of people and countries, but which have clear uh, patterns of benefit for a broad cross-section of the planet, uh, is going to be important for figuring out how we come to agreements on uh, the use of resources. I I made the comment at the working group that we need to remember that there is no benefit without development. There can be development without benefit. Um, And so that the key here is to deliver benefit by developing resources in space in, in, in clever ways where lots of people uh, benefit from the um, from the results, and that almost certainly is not at least for the foreseeable future through bringing lots of valuable material from space back to Earth, because we would destroy quite a number of economies if we brought the price of copper down by say to ten percent of the current level because we brought whole asteroids worth of it back to Earth. Uh, on the other hand. If we were to involve a lot of people from a wide range of uh, countries in the substantial ground resources we're going to need to prospect in space and to develop resources and to develop equipment, um, I think we would uh, see that we would extend benefit. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I could keep throwing questions at you and we could keep on going. Uh, we'll have to leave that for another time. So I'd like to thank Michael uh, for being my guest on the Space Crew podcast and uh, hopefully we can have a discussion like this again. I look forward to it. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is 
patreon.com slash spaceq. We really appreciate feedback. And to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcast or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.